Hello and welcome to The Golfing Mind. I'm your host, as always, Robin Seeger, and in the podcast we talk about golf in general and the mental game in particular, because the mental game is my area of interest and has been for many, many years. I am fascinated how some people are able to train their mind or use their mind as a weapon or a tool to enable them to succeed or perform at a level higher than they otherwise would have been able to do so. When I was um, in my late 30s, I wanted to walk uh, 72 miles across Scotland and I trained for it for a long, long time. And there was a fellow from the British Army who'd been in the Special Air Service, a Special Forces um, Regiment of the British Army. And he was a very impressive character. And he kindly agreed to, uh, to train me. And he would give me a schedule of things I needed to do to build up my endurance. And the great day came when we got to the start line and he and two of his pals were going to come with me and some of my friends. So there was about eight of us in total. And we're going to be walking an average of 26 miles a day. And it was fairly hilly across ground that didn't necessarily have paths, could be a bit boggy. And that was going to be our, um, our challenge, three days to walk 72 miles. Well, the first day it was a bit wet when we started out and there was a stream to cross and there was no easy way to cross it. So uh, we had to just walk across it and it was about a foot deep and my feet were wet. And I said to my friend Andy, oh, my feet are wet. I can't believe my feet are wet. And he just looked at me and he sort of smiled and didn't say anything. And I then said, when are we going to stop for a cup of tea? He said, not far, not far. But we walked hour after hour. And after about four hours, where we'd had very short five-minute stops, um, we got to a place of shelter and from the wind. And I remember dropping down to the ground and other people started putting the hot water on to make the tea and stuff. And I was complaining about the fact my feet were wet. And I was wet. And my underwear was wet. And it was cold and my hands were a bit... And uh, they didn't complain. I just couldn't... And I realised, well, obviously they're special people. They're special soldiers. And I guess they just know how to deal with this. Anyway, we continued on another uh, 12 miles. That day we did 20, I remember 26 miles. It was a very long day. It took us about 10 hours, 10, 11 hours. And we got to a place where we were going to set up camp for the night. And we found a, a deserted barn, which we got into. And we're in this barn. And I was sitting there and I said to Andy, I don't know how you guys do it. You know, I was wet. I was cold. My feet were soaking. My underpants were wet. And it was just miserable, but none of you guys seemed to mind it at all. And he said, yeah, we minded it. We just didn't go on about it. And I think in golf, we can do that ourselves. We can go on about what's wrong with our game. We can highlight it to other people. And in so doing, we're reinforcing this idea that we're not as capable as we would wish we were. So it got me thinking who are the golfers that we admire and why do we admire them? If I ask you who your favourite golfer was, it's possible if you're under 45 years of age, you'd probably say, I'm guessing, Tiger Woods, maybe Phil Mickelson, you know, maybe Nick Faldo, 
Bernard Langer, Sandy Lyle. I'm, I'm not sure who you would necessarily pick. Or, in fact, I may be completely wrong. You may have other people who are your favourites. But the one thing your favourite golfers have in common is they're winners. They're winners over and over again. And they win magnificently. They win when under pressure. They, weren't, they win when it is against them. And they are able to produce these wonderful performances in the crucible, the white heat of the major tournaments coming down the stretch and get the job done. And I think that doesn't come down to luck. And it doesn't simply come down to their swing. And it doesn't come down to their grip or the clubs they're playing. I believe with all my heart it comes down to their, their mind and their heart. And I refer to this as the will to win. They have a will to win, which is not otherworldly, but it is all-consuming. It goes beyond conscious thought. It is, I know people who in stroke play are not exceptional, but in match play they're almost unbeatable. There are some extraordinarily good golfers of the past and the present. I think Ian Poulter is a fantastic golfer. He's come close in one or two majors, but he's not crossed that line. And yet you put him into a match play situation, specifically the Ryder Cup, and he starts playing the golf of dreams. And it's not because he just he wants to win. He has the will to win. And we see this in a lot of great performers. We've, we've seen it in Lewis Hamilton. We've seen it in Roger Federer. We've seen it in um, Ronaldo, the soccer player, and Tom Bradley. Um, we see it in these, so I'd say Tom Bradley is it Tom Brady, the quarterback. You know, for my American listeners, you know who I mean. It's this, their will to win allows them to transcend. And I really believe that they, they stop thinking about anything that can go wrong. And they even go beyond what I call positive thinking. They just get into what I call positive expectation. They believe it's going to be fine. They can see the shot before it leaves the club. It's, and it's, where does it come from? And I think some people are just born with this incredible will to win. And, it's, and it doesn't make them good people. Don't get me wrong. I think they're among some of the worst losers you'll ever meet when these people lose. Now, some aren't. Some are extraordinarily gracious in defeat. Jack Nicholas, Roger Federer, Tiger Woods. When they've lost, they will be the first to congratulate the winner. So, but internally, losing is just so painful. It is so painful because it kind of damages the self-image. So I wanted to look at sort of um, just share a story with you. I was told the story um, oh 20 years ago. Now the fellow who told me the story was the person who claimed it happened to them, and I had no reason to, to disbelieve them then um, or now. And uh, you can decide for yourself if this is a true story. The fellow I haven't spoken to him for about 18 years, so. I haven't checked up on the veracity of it, but I believe it is true, and I'll tell you why when I get to the very end of the, uh, the story. So this is the story of a, a fellow whose parents uh, had both been killed in a fatal car crash, and he was um, fundamentally orphaned, but he had family who were able to take him in. And... Um, he was about 13 at the time, but he was 15. He'd become a very keen golfer. He had a handicap of five. And he lived in Europe. 
and he was invited by a friend of his late parents who lived in Florida and was involved in business with Jack Nicholas. So this would have been 20, let me get this right, this would have been 25, 30 years ago when I think of it, probably, yeah, but 25 years ago. And he told me the story that when he was 15, this business colleague of Jack Nicholas's, who'd been a great friend of his parents, invited him over to Florida for a, a two-week vacation to play golf and hang out with him and his family. And he arranged as a special treat for a round of golf, just him and Jack Nicholas. So he turned up at the tee at the given time and uh, Jack Nicholas turns up, um, very cordial, very friendly, very welcoming. And he says to this young chap, what's your handicap? And the young fella says, oh, it's, it's five. And he's off 15 and he was a good athlete, good at basketball, good at soccer, good, good golfer. And Nicholas looks and says, I'll give you four shots aside. I'll give you eight shots. He said, also, I'll play off the back tees and you can play off the member tees. So he said they went about the day and they had their game of golf and he got beaten seven and six. And he said they played the remaining holes. Mr. Nicholas was very cordial and actually invited him to play again later that week. So later that week he turned up again. Jack Nicholas said to him, um, I'll give you four shots aside. I'll play off the championship tees. And he said he was 15, quite strong, and he would really hit the ball and get it out there in the fairway. And he said Nicholas would be past him or close to him more often than not. Uh, but he always felt that Jack Nicholas had more in the tank than uh, he was showing. But again, he lost seven and six. And Nicholas said to him, so what's your ambitions? And the fellow said he wanted to go to university, et cetera, et cetera. And Nicholas said to him, well, let me see your clubs. And he looked at the clubs. And Nicholas handed him his golf bag, complete with the irons and the woods and the putter. And he said, here, here's a set of clubs. Now, I'm not sure which, was it McGregor or Slazinger made Nicholas a club? I don't know. Or I can't remember. And he said they finished the round of golf. And he said he never met up with Nicholas again. And I said, wow. He said, the interesting thing was when we were playing the match, it was all business. He was out to beat me as quickly as he could. There was no sense of, here's a 15-year-old kid from Europe. I'll go easy on him. I'll let him get close. None of that. He said, if he could have beaten me eight and seven, he would have done so. And he said, I have no doubt at all that Jack Nicholas's view was there is no way some 15-year-old kid from Europe is going to go home and tell his school friends, hey, I beat Jack Nicholas," And that's what I mean about the will to win. It's not that you think, oh, I'll just hit the ball round and I hope I get a good result. It's an absolute determination that whatever happens, you're going to win. Now, the reason I believe the story was true was when I was playing golf with this fellow 25 years ago when I heard the story, he had the exact clubs that he said Nicholas had given him. And they were uh, very small-faced, bladed irons. I think they were McGregor, Jack Nicholas, or others. I can't remember the, the, the manufacturer. They had leather wraps on them. They, weren't, they were those, those leather wrap grips. And uh, the woods were, I believe, back then, I can't remember. I think they were the very first 
Metal Woods or amongst the early edition of Metal Woods. So I believe the story to be true. And I hope it is a true story because I think this will to win is something that we must um, be aware of. So when you tee it up in a match against another person or another pair or you're in a competition, determine to the very best of your ability that you, that it's not that you want to win, but you're going to believe in your ability to win. And that's what's important. You must believe in your ability to win. Because if you think, well, I'd see if I can get in the top 10, that'll be good then I think you're selling yourself short. Now, of course, you're not going to win every time. But somebody once said to me, winning isn't everything, but wanting to win is. And I like that. I don't think winning is the most important thing in our lives, but wanting to win is important. We should always do our best to do our best. If you'd like to find out more about uh, the work I do, please go to seegergolf.com. There's a link in this uh, podcast uh, episode um, online, wherever you download it from. Uh, we have a 13-week online course, which you can do by yourself remotely, or you can work with me directly. Um, if you'd like any more information on my presentations or my masterclasses, please just get in touch. Love to hear from you and uh, drop me a line. All the best until we meet again next week. And I look forward to uh, speaking with you then. <laughs>